0: like being with people, you know, I can have fun telling stories and doing all that. An introvert who's a very quiet, shy person can equally be absolutely full of the abundant life of God. And and this isn't to say, I mean, it, it's hard to, to tie it down because um, God doesn't make any of us alike. We're all different. And God wants each one of us to be truly and uniquely the true and unique person he made us to be. That is likely not to mean that everything I ever want to do, that means I get to do all that. The chances are it's not going to be like that, but it will be the person that God wants me to be. And when I discover that and start to live that, then there is a sense of rightness, a sense of yes, this is what I was put here to do. And, and uh, there are a thousand different vocations within the, the work of the kingdom of God. And when people discover the thing that they are supposed to be doing, and then they can get on and do it prayerfully and humbly, then you see the genuine abundance.
1: We're going to read the continuation of what we read last week. Uh, last week we ended with Jesus saying, If anyone will be my disciple... Uh, He must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. This week we're going to start off with that. And then we're going to go into, well, it's not that the scripture is my favorite part. I have a lot of different favorite parts of scriptures. I love the way God does what he's about to do. So, if you would, uh, there's Bibles around you. The scripture is on the piece of paper there. And also, it should show up behind me. I believe it's page 714 in the Tapestry Bibles. Whoops! I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong spot. That's what happens when I preach at another church in the morning. (laughs) Also what happens is I become very thankful for you guys. Um, So it's a good thing. I preached at a very country church today, and I was like, like, or I said, what would be a luxury meal for you? And this guy said, fried squirrel. (laughs) Now, I like squirrel. But if I'm thinking of a luxury meal I would not go fried squirrel that's just high class eating but <laughs> he's like there's nothing better than squirrel it's good stuff <laughs> it's just interesting <laughs> what <laughs> lobster yeah i'm sure i'm sure your your vegan wife is going oh i love me some lobster <laughs> okay starting at verse uh, 34 excuse me yes 34 What can a man give, for, give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when, his, when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, hey guys. Here's what I love, that God does over and over and over and over again. And you will run into some people who actually see this as a reason not to believe in God, whereas I think it's actually one of the strongest reasons to believe in God. And it's because the Bible is full of paradoxes all over the place. Now, what is a paradox? Since when do you raise your hand? Okay, Joe, what's a paradox? Yes, and, and sometimes they might not conflict, and you just you have an understanding of that, but there are true paradoxes. A paradox is not a mystery, okay? A mystery is different from a paradox. The scripture is full of mysteries also, but, but there are elements in Scripture where it is a paradox, where two things that should conflict are said as though they are true. Why? Because they are true. So here's an example of a mystery. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Don't know. They're both delicious in their own way, okay? <laughs> but <laughs> which came first doesn't matter to me. Actually, truthfully, when you combine them, you put a little egg and fried chicken, that's some good stuff right there, okay? A paradox is this. this I, I looked this up. I love this, okay? You've got to look at it for just a second because it's a paradox because if he says, my nose will now grow... If, he, if it does grow, he's telling the truth and he's not lying. And if you know the story of Pinocchio, when does, this story, or when does his nose grow? Okay, so if he tells the truth and he says, my nose will now grow and it doesn't grow, then he's now lying. And if he's lying, his nose should grow. And if it grows, then he's telling the truth. It's a paradox. It's two conflicting statements that should be false, but together they work for some reason. Uh, here's an old ancient uh sculpture of a paradox. It is a horse that has two ends at the same time and and scripture is full of paradoxes and that's not a bad thing okay i I have dealt with with certain non believers before who have said you know the bible's full of paradoxes and it throws them off when i go yes it is and that's that's not a bad thing you think of a paradox as a bad thing i think of it as as proving once again that we have a god who is beyond creation and we have no way of explaining him the the trinity is a paradox god is three and he is one at the exact same time you're a math teacher three and one don't happen at the exact same time somebody turned in a test to you like that and said three equals one what would you do you would fail them (laughs) they were like but the trinity no you'd be like no (laughs) okay the trinity is true but your math is false that that is a paradox jesus christ is fully god and he is fully human at the exact same time Anybody who's ever taken a test in mathematics knows that 100 plus 100 does not equal 100. But that is what the incarnation is. We have these wonderful paradoxes all throughout Scripture. And we had a paradox that just took place in that Scripture. Jesus says, If anyone wants to be my disciple, they need to do what? He he says, Three things deny himself, take up his cross. And follow me. And then he throws out this wonderful word. For. Now, if you remember, if you were here when we were going through the letters, uh, the Apostle Paul uses therefore a lot. I love the word therefore in Scripture. I love the word therefore. Because what it does is it says, hey, what I just said reflects on what I'm about to say. If this is true, and I believe it is true, therefore, this should happen. And this four is very closely related to that. Jesus just says, hey, if you're going to be a disciple, you need to do these three things. You need to deny yourself, you need to take up your cross, this instrument of sacrifice and and, and suffering, and you need to follow me. And then he goes, four, immediately linking these two things. And he says this wonderful little paradox. Okay, I'm rephrasing it. It's called a paraphrase. A paraphrase is a great way to know if you understand Scripture at all. What you do with a paraphrase is you take what Scripture says and you say it, the meaning of it, in different words if you can say something and it means the same thing but you're using different words that's a great way to know that you understand it if you want a wonderful little way to study the bible take a passage of scripture and try to rewrite it not as though you're god please do not try to pass it off and say this is now the bible that would not be good okay but try to rewrite it where you can go yeah this says exactly what this says but i didn't plagiarize the bible you paraphrase it. It's a great way to just study Scripture is just rewrite it over and over and over again because that way you know, I know what it's saying now. So I'm going to paraphrase this. Jesus says that to lose your life is to actually gain your life or to vice versa it and basically say it as Scripture says it, that is to to save your life is to lose your life. Do you see how that would be a paradox? If you really want to live, what do you need to do? Yeah. Yes, sir. He is he is playing with the meanings and that's one of the things I love about Jesus because he does. He does a lot of wordplay. Now, part of that is because he's the Messiah. Part of that is because he's the Jewish Messiah. And and the ancient near eastern Jews loved word play they love to play around with the words a lot of times you'll see people play around with names because they'll sound similar to something else we don't get that same context because we're not speaking hebrew we're speaking english and you know what a a hebrew rhyme sounds like in english nothing (laughs) at all it just doesn't work very well That's, that's the reason you know poetry needs to be read in its original language typically but guys jesus is playing around with these words but he's making this hugely powerful statement Why? I think it's because of this. We love control. Maybe you don't, okay? I do. My wife will tell you that I hate to fly, and it is not because I'm scared of flying. It's because I don't trust the pilot. I would rather drive for 20 hours than I would fly for eight. It drives me nuts. Our first time up here without our boys... Did we fly up here first or did we drive up here with them? My mind's gone. Okay. And then we flew up here. And we flew up here to look at houses. It was a wonderful, enjoyable experience. We found four houses that we really liked. We got the fourth one because for some reason, houses that had been on the market for a year beforehand, when we came up here and we we put a bid on them, they suddenly sold that week. And we got our wonderful house in Plover that we, we really love. And we were flying back. This should have been eight hours of flight total take me 20 hours to drive we we stayed in the houston airport if i remember right for nine hours at least 12 it took us longer to fly back to baton rouge louisiana than it would have taken if we had flown we stayed in houston which is three hours away from baton rouge for at least 12 hours it drives me nuts i just want control now some of that I confess to you all the time i am a very prideful person and and it is not in the sense of like i'm better than jacob or anything it's i trust my abilities more than i trust other people's abilities it's nothing for me to come in here and set up it is very much a big deal for for me to just go i trust drew and i trust eric and i trust joel i do trust them but originally it was like no i can set it up and it won't survive without me It's my pride i love i love i love control and we do the exact same thing with our faith. I'll give you an example from the 70s. Most of you weren't. There's a wonderful voice mail, whoever that was. Was that you? <laughs> did you guys hear that? The bird? <laughs> what? Did it come, Benji? <laughs> you just need to give Benji your phone. Guys, this is from the 70s. Some of us will be familiar with this. This guy is Robert Scott. He was a pilot in World War II. Uh, he did lots of different things. Uh, you can see... I mean, that's how many zeros he shot down at that point, And I don't have the full picture up there, so there's several others. But he became a Christian during World War II. And as a pilot, he wrote this book called God is My Co-Pilot. Now, in the 1970s, you would have seen lots of, of, of tags. And I don't know if Wisconsin at this point had front driver's tags. But like, when I lived in Alabama, the thing I wanted to do with my car was I wanted to put a Bama car tag on the front for the university of alabama you could put these tags up you can do it with bumper stickers and people would go god is my co-pilot god is my co-pilot sounds like an absolutely wonderful statement except for one thing if god is your co-pilot who realistically is driving all right now all the married people here should instantly know (laughs) I'm taking a wild guess here, okay? This is just a wild guess. But I'm guessing of all of us in the room who are married, if you go on a trip, I'm guessing the guy drives. <laughs> all right, Jacob, just so you know. <laughs> Jacob, I'm going to give you a warning before church ends tonight so that you can run away. <laughs> wow that's the type of thing you say under your breath not out loud (laughs) but oh since he said it yeah you don't want to die no one of the few families i know that's the opposite of this is my mother drives most of the time because my dad will fall asleep driving i'm i'm a terrible passenger i'm really a bad passenger you are an excellent passenger. But I'm a bad passenger because when she's driving, and and I love to drive, so I'll just drive all the time. And she'll be like, no, I'll give you a break. And when she's driving, I can't sleep because suddenly if she pulls out and there was plenty of room when I'm driving, now it's like, no! <laughs> when she's driving, I have li- I have literally screamed before. And she's an excellent driver. And I have screamed before, haven't I? And it's not because she's a bad driver. It's because I want to be in control. And we do the exact same thing with God. We we treat Him as though He's an appendage. Bless you. But He doesn't want to be an appendage. He doesn't want to be a co-pilot. He wants to be the one in control of your life. And Jesus describes it as, if you want to save your life, you lose it. I can... I can tell you far too many stories about people who want to be good Christians. And by that, what they mean is they want to be good people and they live their lifestyle. And God is a nice little additive to their life. But Jesus Christ doesn't want to be an additive. He wants to completely destroy your old life and and take over control and make a new life. Now, I've heard people use this as like, you've got to do what God wants you to do and that's big plans. But let's face it, All of us in the room, if we knew that God was going to suddenly take us and turn us into somebody who is very well known for our faith, we're fine with that. At one time in my life, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a a youth speaker, okay? I I wanted to speak at camps, and I wanted to be really well known for doing basically, truthfully, about five or six different sermons. And I do them really well, and I wanted to do that. But that wasn't God's plan for my life. And and it had to reach a point for me where I was like, no, what I want to be instead is I want to be a minister in people's lives. And early on as a youth minister, after I began to realize what is most important for God to do in my life is for me to be in love with, with, with parents of teenagers and with workers of teenagers, which is where I spent most of my time, dealing with their parents and dealing with those who were working with them. And I spent a decent amount of time with the youth, but I spent much more time with those who worked with the youth And you know what? Nobody praises you for taking out a youth worker for coffee. It's not like I'm going to be known as a celebrity Christian for that. What it typically meant was I spent lots of, you know, $2 for coffee here and $2 for coffee here and $2 for coffee here. And and I got to be a part of the nitty-gritty of their life. It's what God wanted for me. That's what God wanted for my life. And the choice was, I could have gone on and I could have publicized myself and I could have done the speaking tour or I could have spent time dealing with, with college students who felt like God was calling them to be in youth ministry. And the choice was, do I follow what God wants or do I use God as an excuse to just do what I want? See, God doesn't want to be your co-pilot. He doesn't want to be my co-pilot. He wants us sitting in the back seat and Him in complete control and us saying, I trust you. Jesus starts teaching this to uh, His disciples. And we've talked about how we are at the turning point of Mark. Mark is seven chapters of building up of God is great, God is great, and people beginning to trust. And then Jesus saying, and I have to suffer and slowly but surely, the crowd goes from reaching a high point to reaching a low point. The sixth chapter of the Gospel of John describes this, where it says, from this point on, a, lar- a large number of disciples no longer followed him. Not a large number, of people who thought he was cool, disciples. People who said, I will follow you. It reached a point where Jesus looked at the 12 apostles, and he said, Are you going to leave me too? Are you going to leave too? And this is Peter's response. I absolutely love it. Peter responds with, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He doesn't deny that what Jesus is saying is difficult. He doesn't deny that what Jesus is saying goes against what he wants the Messiah to be like. What he says is, you have the words of life. See, the irony is, Jesus talks about if you want to gain your life, you lose it. Because the realistic thing is, is that what we quite often picture the best life as is not really life. The whole reason I showed you that that video from N.T. Wright was he was talking about abundance and how we misunderstand abundance. We think of abundance as in things, but he says it's more of a burden. Joe and Kaylin just moved. (laughs) You know, things are wonderful. It's nice to have a place to put your clothes. It's nice to have pots and pans to cook with. But let's face it, we live in a society where we rent out space to store stuff that you probably won't ever use again. I enjoy watching the show Storage Wars. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not, but there are people who go and they bid on lockers where people put their stuff and then just went, well, I can't afford to pay for this anymore. I'll leave it. And it's amazing the stuff they find there. Amazing the stuff they find there. Uh, Everything from they found lighting systems for a DJ and a guy paid like 600 bucks for it and he made $35,000. Somebody had $35,000 worth of inventory in a locker. Just had so much stuff. It became a burden. They just left it. Jesus says if we want to gain our life, we have to lose it. We have to lose control. Why? Well, because as he describes it, he is... The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. But when we follow Jesus and we lose that life, what we discover is that we're actually getting the best life. I don't mean by that that it will be easy. I don't mean by that it will always be uh, without pain. It is the best life. If you look at most of the times in Scripture where somebody follows, uh, follows Jesus or in the Old Testament follows God... obviously they're still following God no matter what, but in the Old Testament, if somebody says, oh, they followed Jesus in the Old Testament, they didn't know Jesus in the Old Testament. He was there, but he was not known by name. When they follow there, most of the time, they follow with joy. There are a few exceptions to the rule. Jeremiah is one. Uh, Jeremiah, truthfully, drives me nuts. I find him a little whiny. There's a reason he's known as the wailing prophet, and that's because he cries a whole lot. I I deal with enough people in my life that, that cry anyhow during counseling and such. I just don't want to read a book by somebody who cries all the time. But even him. He says, if I try to stop this, it's like a fire in my bones burning to escape. I once heard a Christian say, you know, for Christians, life is like 70 years of hell for an eternity of heaven. And for non Christians, life is like 70 years of heaven for an eternity of hell. That's so stupid. It's so stupid because it means that following Jesus now is not like heaven already. The disciples weren't like, oh, we're suffering, we're suffering. They were, nobody else has the words of life. Jesus didn't just come to give us life when we die. He came to give us life now. I, I hope your experience with Jesus has been that, that coming to him didn't ruin your life. Coming to you and to him gave you life. It gave you peace, it gave you understanding. I have an acquaintance who says that, that Jesus ruined his life, but what he means by this is that he was like the homecoming queen, and he was going on uh, to study medicine. I guess he was not the homecoming queen. That would be a different story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> The fact they were both like, he was not the homecoming queen. (laughs) The homecoming king, he was going on to study medicine. He just finished his college degree. And uh, he says, Jesus came in and ruined my life. And what he means by that is he ruined all of his plans. This guy now uh, lives an intentional life at the poverty level. He gives all the other money uh, to help other people in need. And he doesn't do it in a joyless manner. He doesn't go, oh, I'm suffering for God. He goes, this is the way we're supposed to live. But instead, what we do is we treat God like he's a part of a quilt. Now, my understanding of quilting for my wife is, is that quilting started, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but quilting started from, uh, from the wonderful pioneers in our background saying, I have these scraps. I can make something with these scraps. It was taking something that was left over and making something beautiful from it. Am I correct? Okay, don't, don't, get, <laughs> don't get all professorial on me like, well, not exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay, there we go. What would be before pioneers? Before the Indians took scraps, <laughs> no, but <laughs> in, other countries. in other countries, the Polish took scraps <laughs> and they put them together. <laughs> so guys, we're in the land of Polish Poles. Anybody here Polish? Are you Polish? Okay, we got two. You're not Polish. Are you Polish? Oh, there we go. everybody. Everybody's Polish. Okay, so quilting was this, and the problem is, is, quite often Christians and churches treat God that way. We'll just add them to this. Think of how many things you have seen churches do before, and we're real picky here. Okay, we are real picky. We have these dreams that are in the bulletin every week. Every week, these dreams are in the bulletin because tapestry dreams to be a place where our faith matters more than just on Sundays. And we dream to be a place where we only do meaningful acts. And we dream to be a place that loves greatly. And And the members of the leadership team will tell you that when we get together on the the second Wednesday of every month, we go through these dreams. I used to have these These great religious sounding questions I would ask. And then Adam Holt, he was like, nothing else we ever do sounds religious, so why don't we just change it to this? Yes, I am mocking you. (laughs) Because I was like a discerner and visionary, and I've forgotten the other one now. But he was like, you know what we ought to just do is ask these questions. People, business, and dreams. And we go through the dreams, and we're like, is there anything that we are not doing? Because what happens a lot of times is you come into a church, and there's so many different things you can do that God just gets tagged on. Because we need to do the nursery. Well, we have a nursery, kind of. We have people who are willing to take care of kids and love them. And they've been checked out. But realistically, what we focus on is this. And small groups. And serving. And you guys being with other people who need to know Jesus Christ. I love the fact that every Wednesday night we have people going to Goose. I say every Wednesday. I think it's Every Wednesday. I only show up like once every three months or so. I love the fact that that what I'm hoping will happen is people will go, Oh, yeah, Tapestry. That's that church that has those people that are at Goose all the time. What? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like all the time. I didn't mean, you know, it was 9 o'clock in the morning and you're showing up at Goose. (laughs) Guys, that's part of our focus. And the problem is sometimes in church, God gets added on. And well, we have to do all these other things. We need to do this group. Children's ministry is a great thing. It's not a bad thing, it's a wonderful thing. And and one day we will probably have some children's ministry. But hopefully it's never something we just do because that's what a church does. Because then we're just hodgepodging it all. So what does this mean? I think it means this. I love Pixar movies. Absolutely love Pixar movies because they seem to get better and better and better and better. I would subtract from this the movie Cars. And is Cars 2 out already or is it coming out? Has it really? Okay, then I'm guessing it's probably not any good either because I haven't heard anything about it. This is from, does anybody know what movie this is from? Uh Up. Okay, I I would never send you to this for like, you should watch this and base your life on it except for this. I think Up has possibly the best love story that's ever been told in a movie and it's done in like 10 minutes with no talking. It's just brilliant. Uh, and if I have done your premarital counseling, the story I tell with, with Tony Campalo is basically the story of Up. It's just I feel better telling a story about Tony Campalo than I do saying, hey, this is what love is like and referring you to a children's movie because then you're probably going to dismiss everything else I, I say. But if you remember the story about Tony Campalo, it's, it's this Here's the other thing. Does anybody remember what is happening with this dog? Yes, because in the movie, dogs can talk. Because movies are stupid like that, because realistically, dogs can't talk. Um, But if they could talk, I think they would sound a lot like this, because this collar enables him to talk. And the thing I love about all the dogs in this movie is that they're doing really important things, and then they go, Squirrel! I love it. I just think it's brilliant because you know that's what a dog would be like, okay? A dog would be like, you know, I love you and I haven't seen you all day and you're just wonderful squirrel. <laughs> it's just, and the bad dogs do it and the good dogs do it. Well, there's actually just one good dog uh, and, and I'm going to ruin the movie for you because if you never... Oh no, you haven't seen it? You need to see Up, okay? All right, but just know, squirrel, okay? <laughs> it's really important. But that's what we do. Jesus Christ is saying... If you want to gain your life, you need to lose it. In other words, give me control. And we do a really good job with that for a little bit. And then we go, squirrel! That's our life. We focus for a little bit, and then we just jerk off to something else that's over here that's just a small thing that we we go, oh, that is cute. And it's not. That's a butterfly and a shiny thing. And that's it. But we do it. So I'm going to show you something that I think is actually a wonderful example of what you should be like. I searched hard to make sure this was kid-friendly, just so you know. <laughs> All right, I love zombies. I really do. I love zombies. Great segue. <laughs> it is a great segue. I, I do. And here's what I love about them. Zombie movies are never about the zombies. They're about the people who are running away it's really kind of a travel movie. You just have this terrible thing chasing after you. Yes, sir. Okay. fascination with you can feel not about I think that's what the Okay. I would disagree with you, but we'll go there. So I was whoops, here, we'll come back to that. So here's what I want you to think about. Sam made sure it was kid friendly. <laughs> They're not a Okay. And, and it's not the, the gruesomeness of zombies that I like. I listen to a zombie audiobook. There's no gruesomeness in an audiobook. What I love is the struggle. Now, zombies are known for being single-minded. What are they single-minded about? Yes. Now, just so you know, in the history of zombies, George Romero made the first zombie movie. He did it based off of a, of a short story called I Am Legend, which, yes, the other movie is based off of. The other movie, though, is not a zombie movie. I Am Legend is this weird weird combination of things where the zombies actually think. George Romero made the first zombie movie as a student film. You can actually watch it online because they uh, distributed it underneath another title and therefore the movie went into the public domain. The first zombie movie is free for anybody to watch. And George Romero eventually added to the zombies the idea of them saying brains. Because what he wanted to do was convey this thought that they were after just one thing that's all they care about it's all they focus on and see while i don't want you going around and trying to eat somebody's brains that would not be very polite would not be nice you shouldn't do it i think there's great beauty in this this idea of being focused on one thing this brilliant Christian named saran Kierkegaard, or Kierkegaard, depending on the pronunciation, uh, he was a Danish philosopher. I mention him every every now and then, and he was talking about following Christ, and he said, "Purity of heart is to will the one thing," because our problem so often is that we bounce here, and we bounce there, and we bounce there. We can't lose our life, bless you. We can't lose our life because we're so busy just trying to add other things to it. If Jesus asked us to come in here and be the ones who clean, cleaned the school, if we've lost our life, the mindset should be, well, that's what Jesus wants. I've lost my life. He has control. He could ask me to clean every every bathroom in this facility. And if that's what he asked, well, my life belongs to him, so I'll do it. To will The one thing. To follow Him. That that gets away from my pride. It gets away from your distractions. We cannot be distracted by a squirrel because we have one thing that matters to us. Be it great or small, we want to follow Him. James says, whoops. James says, that that if we are like the waves, if we are double minded, that's a terrible thing. Oh, thank you. I, said, I didn't do that. Okay. He says that we're not to be double minded. We're not to be like the waves of the ocean. In, in fact, he says, you know, when we ask, we should ask firmly to will the one thing. I don't know about you, but quite often I feel wishy washy and wave like. The beauty is is that we have a God who who forgives us when we are double-minded and wants to help us to will the one thing. Sometimes we know exactly what that is. Sometimes we know beyond a shadow of doubt, this is what God wants me to do right now. Sometimes you don't know as well. So I'm going to give you a general guideline for what God wants you to do every day When you don't know the specific guideline, and here's what I mean: a specific guideline is this. Pam and I knew at a certain point that God wanted us to go and to plant a church with the mindset of focusing on people who were not raised in church who or had been hurt in church, a place that was comfortable with questions because we believed in Jesus. We knew that we were sure of that. That was our focus. You know what? This has happened. God has not now given me another set thing and like, you do this. <laughs> so you have a specific, but you also have a general. And I think the, the best example of the general guideline in Scripture is Micah 6 8. So, Adam, actually, would you flash that since I, I messed my PowerPoint up? Micah 6 8 says this, that, that he has told us what it is he wants. He says specifically, he has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require, require of you. So what does the Lord require of you? Well, that's true, but this is this is right behind me right now, Jacob. It's right there. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly. I hear whispering. <laughs> to act justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly with God. Yes. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself fits right into that. But this is what God has required of us. It. It's the best general guideline besides you know, love, uh, love God and love others, in my opinion, because they fit together. Sometimes you know exactly what it is God wants you to do, and other times you don't know exactly, but here's the guideline. Is what you're doing acting justly? And in Scripture, justice refers to rendering to somebody what they deserve. That deals with criminal justice and social justice, if you think about it. Criminal justice is what do they deserve because of their actions. Social justice is what do they deserve because they were created in the image of God. In Scripture, to act justly is to render to somebody what they deserve. To love mercy, that is that is twofold. To love mercy towards ourselves to love the fact that god has forgiven us but also to love the fact that god has forgiven other people and therefore for us to forgive them also and to walk humbly humbly is the opposite of what i just described to you earlier where i talk about my pride humbly is trusting in god enough to say there you take the steering wheel i don't need it and if you drive me into something great wonderful and if you drive me into something lowly, wonderful. Because my one thing is, I want to follow you. Now before I end, does anybody have any questions or anything that they feel like needs to be added? I'm going to take that as a no. And here's my, my, my goal for us this week. Here's my, my dream for us this week. That we lose our lives. That we lose our lives because we trust in God enough to know that He will give us life. That following Him will not be a burden, but it will be life. That following Him will not be torturous, but it will be our very joy. Because when that's true, we will be just like His Son. So pray with me, and if you need someone to pray with, uh, Pete will be back there, and I will be back there. And uh, we're going to have a small video, and then we're going to sing together. Please pray with me. Father, help us to will the one thing. To not be like the waves of the ocean, but instead to be completely focused. Help us to be focused on you and to follow you. Because if anyone wants to be your disciple, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. I pray this in your son's name because he displayed what it meant to be wholeheartedly focused on on your will. Help us to do the same thing. Amen.